Good morning. I've missed you all very much. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for uh, the way you have designed life and, and health to operate. We thank you for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us. Uh, help us to grow closer to you in our, in our uh, affections, our understanding, our, and our ability to share this end time message with this world that so much needs it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing a lesson number nine in the quarterly, the On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope. And the title this week is Contrary Passages. It's very interesting, Contrary Passages. And the first paragraph in the quarterly reads as follows. Uh, Peter warns us, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Paul adds, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort uh, with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This being the case, we should look not only at those passages that easily can be explained to fit our beliefs, but we should also deal with the passages that are commonly used to teach something different than what we believe. So contrary path, that's, that's our, our goal. That's what we're going to do today. Question, if two people look at the same passage and come to completely opposite conclusions, believing differently about the passage, does that mean one of them is, is on God's side and one of them is against God? It doesn't mean that at all, at all. And it's important we recognize that because we are finite beings, okay? And when Jesus returns, at the moment all the saved are winging their way into the clouds to meet him, will there be any human being that at that moment knows correctly every detail of every scripture? No. No, we all will have more to learn and more to be explained to us. What we will have right among the saved, we have a love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we'll love our neighbor as ourselves. We have a hearts that value his methods and principles, and we treat each other with dignity and respect, and we are willing to learn. And thus, it says in Thessalonians that the lost are lost because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. Notice, did not love the truth. It didn't say did not know the truth. Okay? The, the, the idea here being, that the saved have hearts that actually recognize they're finite beings. They're not infinite beings. They don't know everything, but they have a heart that really wants to know truth. They love truth. They want to grow in truth. They want to advance in truth. Thus, they are open to be corrected and matured with truth. Those are the saved. The lost love their doctrines. They love their power. They love their position. Any truth that would undermine their current view, maybe diminish their pride or their ego in some way, make them have to do a mea culpa of some kind, that they don't want. So they deny truth, distort it to maintain their position in power. So it's not about we know everything correctly. It's about that we have a heart that is willing to grow into better understandings as better understandings are explained. Does that, does that make sense? That's why we can be very gracious. This is what, what Paul, and Paul, when he was Saul, he had a different operating method than when he became Paul. If Saul, if you believe differently, that, that, that merited punishment. We should imprison you. We should arrest you. We might even kill you. Paul, though, wrote in Romans chapter 14, after his conversion, he understood what I'm teaching you here. He wrote, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. We present the truth in love and we leave people free. We respect the individuality. We're at different places. We're on different, we're in different journeys. We're walking in different, uh, different, and we're different levels of maturity. We comprehend things in different ways. And two people of honest heart can come to different conclusions. What you want to watch for though is when we have different conclusions, how do we treat our neighbor? 
Will we treat our neighbor as a heretic worthy of being stoned? Or will we still love our neighbor and respect their ability to see it differently? But we won't change our position unless they have presented truths and evidence to us that persuade us, you know what, that is a better way. I like that better. Then we move. Does that make sense? Okay. So the primary purpose, though, what is the primary purpose of, of Bible doctrines? Whatever doctrine you hold, whether it's a doctrine of baptism or day of worship or the Trinity or whatever doctrine. What is it, its primary, most important purpose? It's the revelation of God. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly right. The central, most important point of any doctrine is what does it tell us about God? The purpose of Scripture is a revelation of God to man. If we have doctrines, uh, and the way they should be, we could have a whole host of them, but they should be like spokes on a wheel. Every doctrine in some way enlightens us and leads us to a greater knowledge and intimacy of God. Life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God. The problem in many religions, including Christianity, is we set up standalone doctrines. We have a doctrine, and we will stand it out there by itself, support it with the foundation of various proof texts, disconnected from God. That leads to lots of controversy. And then when you do it that way, the standalone doctrine, proved with certain Bible texts to prove it's right, becomes a litmus test of orthodoxy. And if you don't believe the doctrine, because we proved it to you with the Bible text that prove it's this way, then you become a heretic worthy of some type of discipline or punishment. Worse, it becomes often turned into a behavioral tool monitoring who, who has behaved in the right way, and we begin monitoring each other to make sure that you are abiding by the right doctrines. It's exactly how the Jews who crucified Christ operated in their doctrine and their theology. They looked and searched scripture, thinking they could find the right list of rules and the right doctrinal beliefs to believe in the right way. And if they got the right beliefs and practiced them in the right way, they would have eternal life. Jesus said to them, John 5, 39 to 40, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Jews were searching scripture for the keys of eternal life, approaching it like a code book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned. But they failed to recognize that the primary purpose of their doctrines was to lead them back to a knowledge of God. Life eternal. I might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ now sent. If we have the correct, the, notice, the correct doctrine, the correct teaching, by the way, doctrine means teaching. The word doctor means teacher. Doctrine, doctor. Doctrine, teaching. Doctor is a teacher. And doctor originally meant teacher. And that's why PhD are called doctors. And, and that's what doctors meant before physicians were called doctors. And that's why they called Jesus in the New Testament. You'll read teacher, teacher. They're actually saying doctor. Doctor, if you understand that doctor teaches doctrine, which is teaching. And that's what that means. If you have the correct doctrine on some specific subject matter, say baptism, trinity, state of the dead, Sabbath day, you have the correct doctrine. 
but is not connected to God. It's a standalone doctrine. Can that doctrine actually, it's correct. It's the correct doctrine, correct method of baptism, for instance. Can it be used to actually lead people away from God? Yes. Jesus said, Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel the land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. Now, these people he's talking to, these teachers of the law, was he referring to Roman law? No. The law of Moses. This is, this is theology he's talking about. And, and, and these people who were who are converting people, were they converting people to the wrong Sabbath day? Were they, were they teaching people to eat the wrong foods? To uh, observe the wrong religious festivals? To pay the wrong tithe percentage? To worship at the wrong sanctuary? Or did they have all the right doctrines? They had the right doctrines, but Jesus said teaching people these made them twice, the son of, uh, twice as much the son of hell. How could that be? How can you have right doctrine? And I, want, and, I, and I want you to apply this to your heart. Look at your beliefs. Well, I believe this about this subject or this subject, this subject, this subject. Could you be right on every doctrinal point and be leading people away from Christ? That's what they were doing. Because they didn't connect their doctrines. Well, what does this say about God? What does it say about God? And this is the most important question. As we go through these controversial passages today, as we go through them, the question we will be asking, well, if we believe it this way, not only does, does the preponderance of Scripture support this interpretation, or does there's contradictions within the Scripture itself, but if we believe it this way, what would it say about God? Does it lead us to see a trustworthy God, a God who is, as Jesus revealed him? So first lesson is Sunday's lesson, which is Lazarus and the rich man. And let's read that out of Luke Chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid, a beggar named, uh, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides, all of this between us and you, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, father Abraham, he said, "Uh, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be convinced, even if someone from the dead uh, f- rises from the dead. So first question, is this a literal story describing objective reality in God's universe, how things actually work, 
or is it a parable, a metaphor? Well, there's two views on that. The Adventist viewpoint is it's a parable, a metaphor. Much of the Christian world takes this literally. Why would people believe this is literal? What would be a reason? Why would they do that? Primary reason, preconceived ideas. Before they even read the text, they already have a belief about immortality of the soul and that some part of your being when you die continues in consciousness somewhere. And when they read a story like this, it fits exactly with their already believed, uh, what they believe about the state of human beings and what happens at death. And so it doesn't cause what we call cognitive dissonance. It doesn't go that, cause them to go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. That fits their current perspective. And so they just accept it as, as real. They never question or dig into it. But what are the reasons that indicate from the story and from, um, from other places, from other places in scripture, that this is not literal, it is actually metaphor? Well, in the story, it describes disembodied spirits or souls. Disembodied. Yet the disembodied spirit or soul of uh, the rich man is asking the disembodied spirit of Lazarus to dip his finger into water to cool his tongue. Fingers and tongues are part of bodies. They're not part of disembodied spirits. It's not literal. It's a metaphor. In the story, if we're going to be consistent with the internal dialogue of the story. It also describes, if it were literal, think about the, the, the universe it's describing. If we take this literal, it's describing that the dead are conscious in, a, in, a, in heaven, and hell is a place where the conscious people in heaven are able to see and communicate back and forth with the people in hell who are in torment crying out to them for mercy. And imagine you're in heaven and a loved one of yours is in hell and for all eternity you get to hear their cries of pain and pleading but you are forbidden to do anything to help them. Which one would be hell? So would King David, right, would, would, would King David be filled with peace in heaven, watching for all eternity his son Absalom crying out to him in suffering and torment. If you read David's account of Absalom, how it broke his heart, what Absalom did. Yes. So if you want to take that literal, it's really creating an ugly future. What would it say about the saved? If the saved could live in a place where they watched any living being, an animal, a human, an angel, being tormented in never-ending pain. And, and as you watch that, you are actually satisfied. You feel good. Yeah, that's right. They deserved it. What kind of people? Yeah, God is good. I like God like this. Right, or if they have that view, yes, this is, that's my point, yes, this is right. If that's their mindset, what kind of people are they? If this is the way that things literally are in God's universe, that some are tormented in the fires of hell for all eternity, and the righteous for all eternity watch and hear the screams, would it be a place of happiness without tears? Would, would, would people who watch, I just want you to imagine for a moment, you are watching someone you care about, in absolute torment, being tortured in agony. What is the impact on you to watch that? It leads to two, there's only two outcomes. It either leads to demoralization and apathetic discouragement and you give up. 
or it leads to hardness and callousness of heart where you don't care. It's the only outcomes. This type of taking this literally is quite destructive to the saved. Further, what kind of God would God be if he created a universe in which people are born in a world they did not choose? How many of you chose to be born here? So my, get your mind around what I'm saying. We are born. We didn't choose to be born here. We are born with a sin condition. Born in sin, conceived in, conceived in iniquity. Psalms 51.5. With a condition we did not choose. So a person born in a world they did not choose. Born with a condition they did not choose. And then they are born into an experience. Say an abusive home they did not choose. And they're abused and exploited and take advantage of. And then in their adolescence, they're murdered. Do you think that ever happens in the world? And they never heard about Jesus. Never accepted him as Savior. And, and God sends them to suffer in hell for eternity. If this is literal, you see there's serious problems with this. What would that say about God? What kind of a being would God be to create a scenario where that could happen? Would he be a God who actually loves others more than self as Jesus revealed him to be? Would you do that to anybody you love? In fact, would you do that to an enemy? So is there anything that can be said good about God if you take this literal? No, it actually undermines the truth about God terribly. It really perverts God's character. Uh, So I, I think we can make a very strong case that this was a metaphor or a parable. So the question then is, why would Jesus tell this story? Knowing it could be misunderstood, Why would he tell this story, this parable? What was he trying to get across? Yes. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say the chapter before, the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus was eating and hanging out with sinners. Okay. Tax collectors. Yep. Despicable people like that. And I think that he was trying to show that these sinners were people too. And they had the right picture of seeking God. I, I, I like where you're going with that. Uh, other comments? It shows how, how not to treat other people just because you're wealthy. You know. So here are some of the, and, and this certainly is not exhaustive, here are some of the, the thought, thoughts that I think Jesus was trying to get across with the parable to the people of his day, and I want you to think as I share these with you, do, you, do you see this being taught in the story, and do we need the same lesson today? Is it still applicable to us? First, health and wealth are not good indicators of salvation, right, righteousness, or good standing with God. Did they need that lesson? Yeah. Yeah. Do we need that lesson? Poverty and sickness are not good indicators of who is out of favor with God or cursed by God. Do we need that? I will tell you, I I have stories. I'm not going to go into them, but real life people here today, something bad happens to their health or the health of a loved one. And the, the interpretation is, why is God cursing? What sin? I've even heard pastors tell people, that this happened because they were, had some sin. There is a chasm. Dory talked about a chasm, didn't it? There is a chasm that separates the righteous from the unrighteous. And when it becomes fixed, 
it cannot be crossed. And that chasm is the chasm of a character of love versus a character of selfishness. And when a person becomes fixed in character in one of those two positions, they cannot cross over. It's either the seal of God fixed in righteousness, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others. Nothing could shake them from it. Not even a fiery furnace or a lion's den. Or it's fixed in rebellion and selfishness. And even seeing the miracle of Jesus' divinity flashing, picking up a man's ear, putting it back on him, and watching that, you will not be shifted to the other side to trust him. Crucify him. It's a chasm. There will also be a day of reckoning when all parties will realize for themselves the difference of those two positions. The rich man realized his position was not the enviable one. There will come a day when everybody, all, all, you know, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. There will be a recognition one day of where the person's life choices have led them and why. And then God reveals himself to us via scripture and nature and other revelation. And if we will not believe the evidences God has provided us through his divine agencies during our lifetime, we will not be changed even from the testimony of someone who rises from the dead as evidenced in New Testament shortly after this story Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead and they weren't convinced proving his point even if someone from the dead comes back and I'll make it really easy for you I'll I'll raise a man named Lazarus I'll name that guy in the story so you it won't won't be too hard to connect the dots here <laughs> so this is how I paraphrase this this uh section. In fact, I'm going to skip that. I'll let you look it up on the remedy. And if you don't have the remedy, uh, New Testament, it's a free app for your device. You can download it. You can get one while you're here today if you want a print version copy of it. And you can just see how I paraphrase that because we have a lot more to go through. Monday's lesson. First paragraph of Monday's lesson reads, one of the Bible passages most widely used to try to prove the immortality of the soul is Luke 23, 43. Quote, he replied, truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Almost all Bible versions, with few exceptions, translate this text in a similar way, giving the impression that on that very day, Christ died, on the very day that Christ died, Christ and the thief would be together in paradise. This should not surprise us because those translations were made by biblical scholars who believe in the dogma of the natural immortality of the soul. But is this the best translation of the text? So, First point, before we actually get to the text, I want to tell you that the lesson has made a great admission and acknowledgement here. A great admission and acknowledgement. And that is Bible translators bring their biases in, their preconceived ideas, the beliefs that they already hold, and introduce those into the translation when they translate. In all innocence, in all righteousness, in all desire to give the best translation they can. They, we're, we're still human. When I do my paraphrase, I'm right up front in, my, in the preface telling you what my bias is. And this, is, uh, and th- and this demonstrates that. And I want to say that my view, most, the, the biggest 
bias that's introduced in Bible translations is not where that comma is placed. The biggest bias is how people view God's law. And the assumption of orthodox Christianity is God's law functions no different than human law. It's made up rules that the person with power enforces by external adjudication and inflicted punishments. That's how our law works. And that's how almost all of Christian translators see it. But God is the creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter, life. His laws are the laws upon which reality function, like the laws of gravity and health and physics. These are constants. They never change. And they treat everyone the same. It doesn't matter your personal uh, uh, historic background or ethnic group or any of that. If, if you take three people with three different religious beliefs or three different ethnic groups and they all jump off the Empire State Building together, gravity treats them all the same. And their belief about gravity doesn't matter. If somebody doesn't believe in gravity, denies gravity and steps off, gravity treats them the same. God's laws are constants. He is the creator of reality. We can't build reality, so we make up rules. We call them laws, and then we enforce them with external punishment. That idea is, is, is Roman, okay? In the Christian worldview, the, the Jews already in, had that same idea. But that idea has infected Christian thought and has led to an imperial dictator view of God who is a source of inflicted pain and suffering for rule-breaking. When we come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water, we come back to creator worship and we reset all of our understanding that God's laws are actually design laws, the protocols upon which reality is built to operate. And it changes everything. So I'll give you an example of how this distortion gets woven in. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word called dikaio, dikaiosune, uh, and it's uh, translated into generally one of two threads of words. One, one thread, dikaio, dikaiosune, in its various forms is translated as just, justify, justification, and uh, justified. Or it's translated as right, righteous, righteousness, and set right. Same word, translate, and you can go look at Romans chapter 325 and check the King James versus uh, the NIV, for instance. You will see they translate it differently. One, righteous, righteousness. One, just, justify. When you hear the word just, justification, justify, does it connote the same meaning to you as righteousness and set right? Or does it feel different? The justified language comes from the Latin where we get justification, expiation, sanctification. This is all legal language and it connotes a legal understanding. (laughs) The reality though is that God came to set right that which was wrong. And what was wrong that needed setting right. And and proper understanding of justification or justify is the same. If you have a word document and in your word document you decide to justify the margins. Has anybody ever justified a margin on a document? What are you doing to the margin? Are you doing some legal thing? Are you actually moving that which is out of harmony and putting it in line? You're setting it right. That's what actual biblical justification is. It's taking what's out of harmony and setting it back in harmony or in line. Well, what's out of harmony? Is God's attitude the problem? God needs to be something done to pay, to get him to forgive, to assuage wrath, to appease anger. No, God, God never changed. He's always good. Did God's law change? Need something done? To, no. Did the condition of 
of humankind change when Adam sinned. And thus the heart and mind of human beings need to be put right or set right. This is why the new covenant, I write my law in your heart and mind. I will put you right. You'll get a new heart and right spirit. You'll be reborn. You'll be recreated. You'll be re- have the heart of stone taken out, heart of flesh put in. This is setting right that which is wrong, which is us. It's healing. It's restoration. It's design law, fixing the brokenness in it, within us. But most of the translate, translations weave in the legal language, which makes us focus on shift the problem from a condition from which we need healing and God is doing everything to provide that, that healing solution and we can trust him and we will pray like David, search me and see the wicked way in me, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Just like when you go to the doctor, you ask him to find what's wrong and fix it. That gets shifted to, hey, I'm in legal trouble. I'm going to get punished. I need someone to protect me from the ruling authority who's required to enforce the holiness and righteousness of the law And if something isn't done, the proper payments aren't made, then he is required by law to punish me. So I need someone to stand between me and him and offer him a sacrifice that will will satisfy him. That's pagan. That's imperial. That's human law. And that gets woven into a lot of our theology and interpretations. So the remedy paraphrase is purposeful in setting this through design law, God's laws are the protocols upon which life is constructed. So... It's very easy to deal with the, the text for today. I tell you the truth, comma, today you, are, you will be with me in paradise, how that's translated in almost all the translations. It's very straightforward. Punctu- there's no punctuation in the Greek. So commas are not inspired by God. They're added by the translators. Okay? And the translators decide where that comma needs to go. And if you move the comma one word, I tell you the truth today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. So the promise was made today that in, you, you will be with me in paradise versus I tell you the truth, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. That changes the meaning. And so you have to decide. Well, grammatically, it is, it is legitimate to put the comma in either place. The translator has to decide where's the right place to put that comma. Well, we look for other evidence then to know. And it's straightforward over in John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus speaking to Mary says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. So Sunday morning, Jesus makes an affirmative statement. He hadn't gone to heaven yet. Then Friday, the comma can't mean today you you and I will be in heaven. So the promise is made today that you will be with me there, but we won't be there today. That's where we put the comma. This is straightforward. Tuesday's lesson. Ask us to look at Philippians 1, 21 to 24. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for it is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Depart and be with Christ, remain in the body. Do our biases and preconceived ideas impact how we read that? If Paul meant that some part of him would go to heaven in conscious form and interact with Jesus at his death, would that contradict anything Paul wrote elsewhere? Would that be in opposition to Paul's own writings elsewhere in the New Testament? For, well, for instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice what Paul writes here. 
And he's writing to the New Testament church who are looking for the second coming of Christ when we will all be together with Christ in the air. And they're looking forward to his return and they're getting discouraged because believers are dying. Now think that through. They're getting discouraged because believers are dying. But if believers, when they died, were going to heaven to be with Jesus, would it be discouraging to them? And then notice the emphasis of what he's trying to tell them. And we'll read this together. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. So Paul's already putting a qualitative um, element on the condition of those who, who die. I do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, emphasizing death and resurrection. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in him. So even if we place the dead who have died with Jesus, as Paul does here, he puts them in a state of sleep. He will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, notice the argument here. What is the concern? He's telling them, don't worry, guys. Don't worry. We who are alive, we're not going to get to heaven before those who've died. They're going to be there right with us. We'll get there at the same time. Wait a second. Do you understand that's what he's arguing? They were worried that their loved ones who died would be left behind. Not that we're already there. It's the exact opposite of what's taught. We won't precede them. We won't get there before our loved ones. And he goes on to say, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And together we will meet the Lord in the air. See, they were afraid that their dead loved ones wouldn't be there to join them in their bodily ascension into heaven. Paul saying, don't worry about that. It is exactly the opposite of the assumed idea that is taught that when you die, you go to heaven and are somehow up there with him right now. So how do we reconcile this text in Thessalonians with what we just read in Philippians about being absent from the body present with the Lord and those types of things? To have a functioning, living human being, it requires three elements. You guys know this already. What are the three elements? Body, soul, and spirit. And we use the metaphor of a computer. To have an operational computer, it requires three elements. Hardware, software, and energy. Body is the hardware, the machine. God built a living machine out of dirt in Eden. A body. The Greek word for soul is psyche, from where we get psychology and psychiatry and it means your individuality, it's your software. And if you think about your computer, there are many people who have machines identical to mine. Same company, same brand, same screen size, same processor, same hard drive, same machine as mine. And and whichever one you have, there are many people who have the same machine as yours. Yes or no? Does that mean all of our computers are the same? 
Is it the machine that makes them unique? What makes them unique? The information stored on the machine, the software, the data. What makes us unique are our souls, our psyche, our individualities, our identities, our personhood. That's the psyche. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul, the psyche. Okay? Uh, And then the third element is the spirit, panuma, from where we get pneumonia or pneumatic, and it means breath or wind or breath of life. This is the energy source. And when a human being dies, as what we call death, that sleep experience, the body turns back to dirt or dust, as the Bible says. The spirit, the energy, returns to God who gave it. But what about the soul, the psyche, the individuality, the personhood? Another way to say it, your character. Well, the Bible says our names, which is our characters, are my computer, which if somebody were to grab this and steal it, but I have backed it up on a cloud. Am I worried about the destruction of the machine? Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy your machine, but can't destroy your data. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy your body, but can't destroy your soul. Those who have accepted Christ have their identities, their souls, safely secure with Christ in heaven on the heavenly servers. And when, as Paul wrote in Thessalonians, Christ returns, he brings with him those who have fallen asleep in him, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Same passage, same dead, coming from two places. Because why? He's bringing their unique identities. He's creating upgraded hardware, heavenly bodies, immortal bodies, downloading their identities into their new body, and then breathing the breath of life, and they live again. It's very harmonious. So my view, I don't have any conflict with any of this, and, and the dead in Christ can be safe with Christ in heaven, safely secured on the heavenly service, the Lamb Book of Life, in a state of sleep, waiting for resurrection. Wow. What about this text, 2 Corinthians 5, which seems to suggest the same thing. Now we know that if this early tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, was that pretty straightforward and plain? Or is that like, that's kind of confusing. Plain, straightforward. Do you look at it through the the Greek mythical eyes of disembodied spirits with consciousness? Do you look at it through the more modern eyes of body, soul, spirit, uh, hardware, software, uh, energy source? The emphasis, was the emphasis on living outside of a body or is the emphasis of living in a new heavenly immortal body? 
What was the emphasis of the passage? So here's how I paraphrase it in the remedy. I will share this, this section with you. Now we know that this earthly body is like a tent or a hospital gown that wears out easily and leaves us exposed. You ever been exposed in a hospital gown? (laughs) And if this earthly body, which our individuality currently occupies, is destroyed, we have an eternal body that will never wear out, a heavenly dwelling place for our individuality, but not built by human hands. We didn't inherit it directly from sinful mother and a sinful father. Meanwhile, the older we get, the more we groan, longing to be free of this deteriorating body and to be clothed with our perfect heavenly body. Because when we have exchanged this mortal body for our heavenly one, we will not be found sick, dying, and exposed. For while we are in this collapsing tent, we groan with the burden of aging and slow decay. We don't want to die and be rid of this worn-out body, but we want to be translated directly into our heavenly body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by eternal life. God's intention for us has never changed. He created us to live eternally. And as the first phase of our restoration, he has given us the spirit to heal our hearts, to heal our minds, guaranteeing our future complete recreation. We certainly know that as long as this frail body is our home, we remain away from the Lord. But we live by trusting God with how things will turn out, not by waiting to see the future restoration. Therefore, we are confident while in this mortal body, even though we prefer to be translated into our heavenly body and be at home with the Lord. Our goal is to be pleasing to him by living in harmony with his design for life, whether we are in the mortal body or our heavenly one. For we will all appear in Christ's examining room so that each one may be accurately diagnosed and receive what their condition warrants, whether from compliance or noncompliance with God's treatment plan. Any questions about that? That's a design law view of the same passage. It's how reality works. Wednesday's lesson, 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13, this is out of the NIV. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what, what they fear. Do not be frightened. But if your hearts set apart Christ as Lord... But if your heart's set apart, Christ is Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks and gives a reason for the hope is in you. Yes. Um, But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In, in it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. How do you explain that one? What do we take Jesus to mean in this, in this passage? What does it mean that Jesus went to some place through his spirit and spoke and preached to spirits in prison? Does that mean he went to some alternate reality where there are living beings being tormented and while he was there, he preached to them? This is a common Christian view, I will tell you. It is commonly believed across Christendom that during the three days of Christ's time in the tomb, he went into hell 
and he preached to the tormented spirits in hell based on this parish. That, that's what is commonly accepted in Christian. Did you all know that? No. That's commonly taught based on this passage. If that were true, it contradicts so many things. We're going to unpack this one. Contradicts the, uh, the mortality of the soul taught by the rest of scripture. This idea of natural mortality uh, makes God out to be somebody who is either very unwise or very cruel. He never anticipated the possibility that his children, Adam and Eve, when he created them and gave them immortal life, he never anticipated that they could ever rebel. So he never foresaw any issues related to, ch- to their descendants suffering for all eternity. He, he got caught off guard. That's not a God you can really have much admiration for. Or he did see and foreknow and he did it anyway. Still not a God you can have much admiration for. It's a cruel God. No, the mortality of the soul, conditional mortality, which is consistent through scripture. And this is why he barred the way to the tree of life so there would not be an immortal sinner. And it says in uh, 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone is immortal. And the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of sin is death. Gift of God, eternal life. And so the righteous receive the gift through Jesus Christ of eternal life. But we don't have it inherently. So it contradicts much of the Bible to teach this idea of a natural immortality. It contradicts the teaching that sin causes death and replaces it that with God causes you to suffer. Contradicts the idea of the first death being asleep, which is taught throughout all of scripture. Contradicts the idea that salvation must occur in this life and suggests that somehow some souls might be saved in the afterlife as, uh, and leads to ideas like purgatory and things. And I'm not going to go further into that today because next week there's a whole section on purgatory next week and where that doctrine came from. And if we take it literally that he went and preached to the souls imprisoned before the flood that were destroyed in the flood, this is the antediluvian world, well, what about all the other souls that died after the flood that were imprisoned? I did not care enough about them to preach to them. <laughs> what would it say about God if he actually had a place of conscious torment like this? Then what does the text mean? Who are the spirits in prison that are being referred to and how did Christ preach to them? Well, first off, when you have words like that, you should do a Bible search. What is the word spirit in the New Testament, it's panuma. What can it mean? What are the legitimate meanings for it? And are we attaching the right meaning? You understand one single word can mean more than one thing. So the word panuma is translated spirit, translated breath, translated wind. It's translated ghost. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on the water and they thought it was a ghost? It's I. Okay? Uh, and also, sometimes some of the Bible, the Holy Ghost. Instead of the Holy Spirit, okay? It's the panuma, same word. And it can mean the intelligent being. It can mean, spirit can mean intelligent being. So, Hebrews 1.14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Is the Bible meaning that angels are disembodied vapors? Or, or angels actually have real physical being too. Yeah, they're, but they're spirits. They're intelligent beings. That's one of the potential meanings. So you have to decide when it says the spirits in prison, was it talking about disembodied vapors or something? Or is it talking about intelligent beings held in prison? 
And then if you think, okay, let, let's try and let's see if the, as we work this puzzle piece out, does, does the jigsaw puzzle piece fit best with intelligent spirits? Well, let's plug that in and see the rest of it if it fits. Because he went to preach to those spirits in captivity or held in prison. When Jesus was here, did he, came, did, did he say anything about the, the purpose of his mission? He came to do something. What did he come to do? To set captives free. Does Paul talk about being enslaved to something? Slave to sin. Okay? So the text can mean that he went and spoke through the Spirit. He spoke to, through the Spirit to the intelligent beings who were imprisoned as captives to sin before the flood. That's what it can mean. And he does this through the Holy Spirit. He said he, through the Spirit, he went and preached to them. Do we have evidence that the Holy Spirit is active before Pentecost in Scripture? Yes. How about starting at Genesis 1? <laughs> the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. Psalms 50, uh, 51. Uh, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And many, many places to the Old Testament. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's always been active. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. The Holy Spirit is the spirit that brings truth to the hearts, brings conviction to the soul, leads to repentance, and applies what Christ has done into the hearts and minds, bringing conversion. So here's how I paraphrase this section from the remedy. Don't you see that if you are genuinely committed to God and eagerly practice his methods of love, you cannot be stopped? Even if you are attacked or persecuted for doing what is right, by forgiving and loving others, you reveal God's true character and simultaneously are advancing to be more like him. So do not, fe- uh, yeah, so, so do not fear for this mortal life and the world's fears. And don't be frightened for a minute, but make Christ the center of your heart, mind, and character. Always be prepared to talk about God's character of love as revealed in Jesus to anyone who asks why you are hopeful in the face of persecution, trial, and difficulty. But be sure to do it with gentleness, kindness, and respect, with a pure heart and clear conscience, so that those who lie, gossip, and spread rumors about your ministry for Christ may be ashamed of their malicious ways. It is better, if God permits, to be persecuted for doing good than to suffer the results of doing evil. For that is exactly what Christ did. He suffered terribly and died once in order to cure sinfulness, to provide a remedy for all humanity, and to restore us to unity with God. In Christ, love vanquished selfishness, and righteousness overcame unrighteousness. He allowed the sin-sick to kill him, and in giving himself freely, he triumphed over the infection of selfishness and fear, and was renewed to life by the spirit of love and truth. It was through the same spirit of love and truth that he preached to all humans who were held in the bondage of sin. Yes, it was Christ working through the spirit who preached to those bound by sin in Noah's day. He was so patient with them, working constantly to reach them as Noah built the ark, yet only eight people responded and had a new life on the other side of the great flood. Any questions? And then we're, I think we're going to try to slip in Thursday's lesson. (laughs) Moving fast, guys. And this one, Revelation 6, uh, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was complete. So what do you think about this text? The souls under the altar calling out for vengeance. What book are we in now? Revelation. Is Revelation to be taken literally or is almost, almost everything in it symbolic? It's, it is a symbolic representation. It's, it's picture image. It's like, it's like hieroglyphics or, or it, it's, it's symbolism. You have to interpret the symbols and what does it mean? When you read about a rider on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. <laughs> it's not to be taken literally. Jesus isn't coming back with these metal sticking out of his mouth. The sword is a sword of truth. And what comes out of the mouth is truth. And so Jesus speaks the truth. I am the way, the truth, and life. So it's a very straightforward understanding when you understand the sword is the sword of truth that he speaks. It's very, very, very simple. The lamb is not about a ruminant animal. The lamb that was slain is about a self-sacrificial savior. And so this is symbolic. So we move, move away from symbols to reality. So how do we explain this? Well, first, let's decide which altar. Is this the brazen altar that they're under, or is this the golden altar that they're under? Well, let's read the first paragraph in the lesson. This is what it says. The opening of the fifth apocalyptic seal reveals an unusual scene. The souls of the martyrs were seen metaphorically under the altar, crying to God for vengeance. Some commentators are inclined to identify the altar as the altar of incense mentioned under the seventh seal, uh, Revelation 8. But the reference to blood instead of incense in Revelation 6 leads us to see here an allusion to the altar of burnt offering where the blood of the sacrifice was poured. As the blood of those sacrifices used to be, used to be sprinkled around the altar, so the blood of the martyrs was symbolically poured at God's altar when by, uh, when, by remaining faithful to his word, the word of God and testimony of Jesus, they lost their lives. So the, the last thing takes position is the brazen altar. What are your thoughts? Does anybody go, oh, well, okay, see, not incense, blood, blood's here, uh, incense there, uh, that kind of makes sense to me. Boom, done. They took the blood of the atonement into the holy sanctuary and sprinkled it. The atonement blood was taken all the way into the most holy place. That's right. And then, and then applied to the golden altar. Okay. And then ultimately out to the brazen altar. Went all three places. That's right. Good, good. I like that. So, so, there's, so there's a, what she just said when she said the blood of the atonement was taken to the most holy place, the holy place and the, and the brazen altar. She goes, wait a minute. That's not an absolute truth. There's an exception. Okay. Does that exception apply to our interpretation? Is that the only exception? So, sinners, there are two types of, of, of sin, two types of groups, two groups of people in the Jewish economy that were identified, the priests and the non-priests. They were separated. Priests, Levites camped around on all four sides, and the, and the 12 tribes of Israel camped outside of those. And so the priests were between the, the, the 12 tribes, the 12 other tribes, and you know Joseph's tribe was split into true Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay, so he got two portions. Joseph got two portions. So there are actually 13 tribes. Joseph was split. And so there's 12 tribes around with the Levites in between and the sanctuary in the center. That setup is an object lesson. If you can interpret the symbols, these are real historical people who did real historical stuff. They really lived and they really camped that way. But it's an object lesson to the great controversy. Who do the priests represent? The converted. The converted. We are priesthood of believers. Okay? And the priests would wear white robes. And we are to be, the church is dressed in 
white. It's the purity of Christ. And so in between uh, the presence of God and the rest of the camp were the Levites who would go out and witness or bring others into that relationship. We as the priesthood of believers to go out in the world and bring the rest of the world back into a knowledge of God. This is an object lesson. Okay, and that's what, that's what symbolizes. So the 12 tribes represent the unbelieving peoples of the world, whereas the Levites and the uh, priesthood represent the converted peoples of the world. When a non-priest Jew brought a sin offering, the blood of that sin offering was applied to the brazen altar and the horns of the brazen altar. But when a priest sinned and brought his personal sin offering, the blood of that sin offering was applied to the horns of the golden altar. And then the rest of the blood was poured out around the brazen altar, but it was applied to the golden altar. Now, understanding that there are two symbolic groups, the, those that are the priesthood of believers in their white robes, and those that are not in white robes that are outside, the, outside and, and can't come into the holy place. The only ones that can go in the holy place are the priests, right? And, and what does the holy place represent? It's all solid gold. Everything's covered in gold. You've got the lampstand. What's the lampstand represent? Light. It is light. Okay, so we receive light from the lampstand. Can we be more specific? The Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit is the flame in the lampstand. Okay, but the lampstand, the lamp, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Jesus is the word made flesh. So the lampstand is symbolic of the living and written word of God, which is Jesus. And the 12 loaves of unleavened bread, which were in the holy place, every Sabbath, the priests would join on Sabbath every week in the holy place with the high priest, and they would eat the bread. What does the 12 loaves of bread symbolize? Jesus says in John, in John, I am the bread of heaven that has come down. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and this is my body broken for you. So this is symbolism of Jesus. It's also, so who do you think goes into the holy place, partakes of the word, studies the word, and then the incense represents the prayers. Who is offering actual prayers? This is all the, this is the church. This is the church. These are the converted people, partaking of Christ, studying his word, offering prayers to God. That's the church in the holy place. And they're dressed in white robes. And what do we find the text says about the martyrs? What, what, that they were given white robes. Now, which group of people do you think the martyrs represent? The people who have not converted, do not believe in God, or those who have given their life to God, and they're dying for him. So my view is that this is the golden altar, not the brazen altar, for a lot of reasons that I just went through. And what does the blood symbolize? Okay, this is very interesting, yes. Because Leviticus says, Leviticus chapter 17, the life of the animals in the blood. So the blood represents the life, and the life is the life of our Savior, Christ. Ultimately, the, self, the, the sacrificial animal's blood represents the life of Christ, which we receive as we partake of Christ, symbolically. But the penal substitution view will almost always tell you that the blood represents death. It's interesting. Call them on it. The blood represents the shed blood, which is the death penalty that was paid to the ruling authority in our behalf. But if you actually go through the symbolism in the sanctuary service, where is the blood applied? 
It's applied to the various elements. It's not actually offered to God. It's applied to the altar. It's applied to the base. It makes things holy. Anything that was touched by the blood of the sacrificial animal became holy. It made things holy. Did Father need the blood presented to him so he could become holy? No. And where did Jesus put it in John 6? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, where does Jesus apply the blood? To us. We're the ones unholy that need to partake of holiness to become holy. And we take of that through Christ. So, as we put these symbols together, it's very interesting that the blood of the sacrificial animal, animal as you confess here, as the priest confesses the sin, the, the ministering priest would take that blood and put it on the horns of the golden altar, symbolically saying, now get your mind around this, this sinner is registered in my Lamb's book of life in heaven and their life is replaced with the life of Christ. So it's no longer their sinful self that lives. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. I have a new life, a new heart and right spirit. I'm reborn. And it's symbolically, your individuality is cleansed by the life of Christ in this symbolic ceremony. And that's why their souls are under the golden altar calling out. Now, what are they calling out for? Well, the lesson points out they're calling out for vengeance. Well, they could, could they be really very, very happy if they're in heaven conscious calling out for vengeance? What law lens are you seeing that through? Human law lens, vengeance means what? Hurt them. Make them pay. They got to suffer. But let's look at what the Bible says, though. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, the Lord Almighty... The mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Avenge, avenge. Wait, so if a doctor is treating somebody who has an invading organism, you pick it, E. coli, a salmonella, influenza, an invading organism is attacking them, and the doctor wants to take vengeance. Where does the doctor want to place all of his might and power? Against the patient or against the organism? He wants to destroy the infection. This is what God is saying. I will take my vengeance by purifying you, eliminating fear, eliminating guilt, getting rid of shame, getting rid of selfishness, restoring in you a, a new heart and right spirit. That's my vengeance. He destroys sin. And thus the saints, souls calling out, are calling out for him to finish his work of destroying and eliminating sin and purifying his universe. That's what he's calling. How long, how long till you finish the work and get rid of sin in your universe? Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Yes. Tim, is is the concept of vengeance here uh, equatable to the idea of justice? Do the two overlap in some way? So if we understand, again, which all ends, God's justice is always doing what's right. And the just thing is to heal that which is broken and restore to perfect life and health. So yes, you can make that argument and they can overlap. But if you have the wrong law lens, though, then justice in the human model is always about making someone pay for their crime. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are so beautiful that uh, you have created your universe to operate in harmony with your character of love and the laws that you have are emanating from your being, the protocols of life. And and we were born in a condition we didn't choose and we know you're not mad at us. 
We know that you're not mad at us, Lord. And we know that you are working to heal and restore us. So we ask that your spirit be poured out. Take your victory, the victory you've achieved, reproduce it in us. And then enable and empower us to take this healing message to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.